Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We are definitely a Zimbabwe in the fight for our lives. Yes, there's a case and cause for democracy and uh, there's a case and cause for, for, for freedom and it needs world support. Welcome to episode three of Behind the Lines, a new geopolitics podcast with me, Arthur Snell. Our first two episodes were about the crisis in Ukraine, indirectly and directly. But this is a global affairs podcast, and this week we're going somewhere completely different, to southern Africa, specifically Zimbabwe. But there are still connections between these two disparate subjects. Last week, I spoke to Dr. Matthew Ford about how the smartphone is transforming modern warfare. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that discussion, I encourage you to go back to it. It really was fascinating. This week, I found myself discussing how smartphones can be used to make it harder for an autocratic African government to rig an election. The elections in Zimbabwe brought back memories of my first ever diplomatic assignment over 23 years ago, where I found myself in Zimbabwe's capital, Harare, as Robert Mugabe faced the first serious electoral threat to his political dominance, with a challenge from the Movement for Democratic Change, as the opposition was known then. That was the year 2000. And Mugabe's party, ZANU-PF, his political movement, was able, in spite of extraordinary international pressure and widespread media coverage, electoral observation missions, Mugabe was able to bulldoze his way to retaining power after an election campaign marred by violence, intimidation and credible allegations of electoral fraud. 23 years later, some of these events seem to be repeating themselves in Zimbabwe's most recent elections. This time, both parliament and the presidency were being contested, but once again, ZANU-PF, that has controlled all the levers of government since the country gained independence, ZANU-PF was able to announce its victory and rapidly swore in the president, Emerson Manangagwa, on the 4th of September this week. 
Back in the year 2000, the British government was seen as squarely on the side of the opposition MDC party, with senior UK ministers making regular public statements on Zimbabwe's internal politics. Some argue that that stance from the British was counterproductive. It allowed ZANU-PF to paint the MDC as a tool of the former colonial power. On this occasion, in 2023, Britain has had a much lower profile. Perhaps that's a good thing. And indeed, the most vigorous debate has been within the Southern Africa region after a report by election observers from SADC, which is a regional integration organization, was highly critical of Zimbabwe's election process. And that's an unusual development in a region where the tradition has not been to criticize neighboring countries publicly, particularly not to criticize electoral processes. So... I was able to get two perspectives on these elections. First, an academic angle from a seasoned observer of Zimbabwe's politics, and then a rather more visceral response from a Zimbabwean political activist who is now living in exile in the UK. I hope you will find both of these conversations interesting. So I'm delighted to be joined for my first conversation today by Sarah Dorman, who's a senior lecturer in international relations at the University of Edinburgh, and who has devoted her professional life to understanding Zimbabwe. In fact, Understanding Zimbabwe is the title of her book, published by Hearst. She's been following the most recent elections in intimate detail, so it's great to have her perspective today. Sarah, welcome. Thanks very much. Let's start, uh, if you like, with the outcome. So on, on Monday the 4th of September, Emerson Manangagwa was sworn in as president, in spite of all kinds of objections and questions around the election, does that mean that whatever we might think, uh, he's got away with it and, and this sort of, this chapter of Zimbabwe's story is now closed? I guess that depends on two factors. Uh, one is um, people in Zimbabwe and their response, and there certainly are many people there who are not satisfied with that result and who um, do not consider this government to have been f- fairly elected. Um, but their levels of recourse are rather limited and uh, people are rather unwilling uh, to go out on the streets and protest after the people were shot um, on the streets of Harare some days after the last election. Uh, so, so those options are limited. Uh, the other question, of course, is the international community. And there have been various statements from the usual suspects, particularly um, the United Kingdom and, and the United States, questioning the results, calling into question, primarily based on the observers' reports, which have been extremely critical. Um, The real question is perhaps uh, the response of Zimbabwe's neighbors, of uh, the the countries in what's called the SADC group, the uh, uh, Southern African states which surround Zimbabwe, who are um, in a much stronger position. And to a large extent, although uh, what we call the international community will express concern about the election results, they're unlikely to act unless the the regional grouping is is uh, committed to taking some sort of action. 
Yeah. So let's talk a bit about that. You, you mentioned observer reports, and obviously, you know, as is quite normal, there were international observers of this election, uh, and importantly, SADC, this this regional group, those Zimbabwe's neighbours, South Africa notably, but obviously other countries in the region, uh, they fielded an observer team, and. Uh, perhaps contrary to what some expected, their report was highly critical. Could you say a bit about that? So what happened this year was really quite exceptional. As, as I said, whereas there's there's been these general criticisms uh, across you know elections over the past 40 years, um, this year, the actual election day descended into chaos in many areas. Um, what was really exceptional was that um, the ballots didn't arrive at certain polling stations. So the, the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, which has become increasingly politicized and militarized over the past few years, um, had to had, had told the observers, had told, had, had committed to having ballots ready. Um, this is sort of a, one of their their constitutional or at least their legislative requirements is to, to say that, and they did. They told everyone ballots are ready. And then on election day, ballots weren't ready. And, but this was notably, particularly in urban areas, which have historically been opposition strongholds. Many of those urban areas were voting 70% for the opposition. So really strong, strong opposition areas. Um, and those urban areas and also the, the, um, area of Manika land, which has sometimes gone to the opposition and sometimes hasn't and was very much perceived as a battleground in this election. So th- those, um, a number of polling stations in those areas didn't get ballots. So some of them didn't get ballots for a few hours. Some of them didn't get ballots until late in the afternoon on election day. Some didn't get them until the night. Some people were unable to vote until the next day. And crucially, those of us who, who've been in Southern Africa, and I know you know you know the area, uh, it gets dark at six o'clock. It gets yeah. very, very dark. And so the, the people had been queuing from six in the morning earlier probably, to vote. They were queuing all day in in hot sunlight. They were then, if they were able to, stay staying queued up all night and into the next day. Um, and these are these are situations in which particularly um if if you're a woman, um you probably didn't feel very safe going out to vote or or trying to get home from the from from voting. You wouldn't be able to leave your family at home. It created all sorts of, of situations. So it wasn't just that it was late. Um, it it made it very very difficult for people to um, to get out to vote because of all the the added constraints around that. So as you said, the observers noted this, um, and most strikingly. The, the electoral group that was representing SADC presented a very, very critical electoral report. So for the electoral observation report to come out, I mean, I was, I was live tweeting it and was just in shock. It was, it was, it, it was really striking. They used very strong language. In some cases, they used a stronger language than the international observers who tend to try to also be a bit diplomatic about these things. And so, um, yeah, this was a, a, a major shift in the regional dynamics. And, um, it's continuing to send little shockwaves out through the region. Zimbabwe, um, the ruling party, ZANU, reacted very, very strongly. They've, uh, made a, a number of, uh, uh, criticisms, uh, particularly of the the leader of that um, election movement, who's a, a Zambian 
opposition politician. And um, there have been also other people who are maybe loosely affiliated with the party have, have made some really nasty allegations and jabs and, 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 and even threats directed at him. And Zambia has responded. Other, other countries are, are uh, um, kind of being a bit wary. So we saw some countries sending uh, their leaders or their ambassadors to the inauguration, but quite a few stayed away. So it's, it's a really interesting moment for a, a region where political alignments have not changed very much for decades. And it may be that this is just a little bump. I wouldn't want to, to say that everything is changing, but it's, it's certainly unexpected to those who watch SADC politics and, uh, and in particular Zimbabwe's position within that region. But of course, you also have the degree to which uh, the ZANU-PF party, the, you know, the ruling party in Zimbabwe, the, the party that has controlled the country since independence, has managed to uh, always play on this um on its own history as part of the liberation struggle. I noticed that even in uh, press conferences as the sort of election chaos was unfolding, you had um, Zimbabwean ministers talking about the liberation struggle. Now, I remember I worked in Zimbabwe in 2000. Then it seemed like the liberation struggle was quite a long time ago. And now we're talking, uh, you know, 40-something years ago. But yet that still seems to be a significant factor in the way that uh, people sort of navigate the the, the rhetoric of politics in in the country. Yeah, it it is really striking how powerful this is. And and you can understand it on on one level. People living today, although they they may not have um, uh, personal memories of of, uh, either the Rhodesian state or the apartheid state, they're very aware that their parents' opportunities were blocked, that they may have had um, they may have relatives who, who were jailed by, by, uh, Ian Smith's Rhodesia, who fought against it, who, um, who faced deep, deep discrimination, who lost their land, who, who, who were pushed off, you know, their, their ancestral farmlands. Th- those, those, those wounds, those, that awareness of, of, of what those, those states did is, is very, very present in people's minds. But Zanu has been very, effective in 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 transforming that and 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 sort of parlaying that into a, a political legitimacy a political hegemony that's quite effective domestically as well as internationally and it's 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 one of those things where it's they've they've linked the two together so it ought to be possible to to be aware of um the inequity of those earlier regimes and to be very proud of those people who fought for independence and who, who many of whom suffered and died for independence without necessarily supporting ZANU of the party. But ZANU has, has used its discursive strategies, has used, um, uh, videos it has used its control of um of the radio you know they they commission music they control what music is played they control what's taught in schools and so forth to to make those two inseparable to to essentially suggest that if you don't support zanu you're a traitor and so that that's worked domestically but it's also been incredibly powerful internationally and so they they've they're they're well, especially i would argue under um the former president Mugabe, 
you know, they, they were very wily, clever politicians, and they've been very, very effective in using that. And it's been particularly powerful on regional dynamics. So one of the, the slight ironies of, of this is that actually the ANC in South Africa and ZANU in Zimbabwe were not allies during the liberation struggle. They, they were actually very deeply opposed to each other. And there are not strong personal ties between the current leaderships. So yeah. the, the willingness of, um, or the, the South Africa's ANC leadership's commitment to backing ZANU and Zimbabwe at all costs, which seems to be what's happening at the moment, um, is, is, very much caught up in this, this, it's, it's much more about emotion and, um, and the ideas of, of independence, of liberation, of the struggle than in any concrete, uh, specific institutional ties or personal ties that, that we might see as going back to the 1970s or something like that. So it is, it is a very much about emotions. It's, it's very much about ideas of what does it mean to have fought for our independence, fought for, for, for equality within our states, and then become the rulers of, of these post-liberation states. Yeah. And I wonder if it's also actually, as, as in any country, you know, it's about domestic politics in South Africa, where, of course, whilst, you know, the, the, the analogy breaks down in, in, as, as most do if you go into too much detail, but to some extent, the ANC is itself, you know, a liberation movement, which has morphed into a rather corrupt and sort of sclerotic, you know, elite led, uh, entity that, that doesn't necessarily you know, take the interests of the ordinary person to ha- heart. And of course, they also hark back to their, their fight against apartheid as a way of sort of legitimizing themselves. Absolutely. That, that is very much what it's about. And especially at this particular moment where the ANC is in quite a weakened state and where, and, and it is leading up towards its own, own uh, elections. So it, it is a, a particularly sensitive moment for them. South Africa is not immune from the impact of what happens in Zimbabwe, but it seems, uh, that the, the, the political, the importance of, of maintaining this idea of that liberation movements have the right to rule and can't be challenged, that they're unchallengeable, that it's unthinkable to think about a Zimbabwe in which ZANU is not in power in the same way that they may wish people to think it's impossible to think of a South Africa without the ANC in power becomes becomes the most important um, political objective. Fascinating. Uh, let's talk a bit about the, the sort of the wider world and its response. I, I, you, you, you noted that some of the the, the kind of international as opposed to regional observers were, were rather more positive. I was struck that the Commonwealth report, and of course Zimbabwe was a member of the Commonwealth, the Commonwealth which largely comprises former British colonies, not entirely. Um, uh, Zimbabwe left the Commonwealth after the kind of collapse in relations between the UK and Zimbabwe. Um, but the, the Commonwealth report was was fairly positive, and it certainly was drafted in such a way that it was easy for uh, the Zimbabwean government to claim it was very positive, that the, the criticisms were, were somewhat buried. Um, is, is that, does that reflect um, a particular sort of politics of the Commonwealth seeking to welcome Zimbabwe back in? Or is that to reflect a wider point that actually 
the the world um, with with you know the huge sort of challenges that exist at the global level. Whether we're talking about the war in Ukraine, whether we're talking about the rise of China and and its its sort of increasingly conflictual relationship with the United States, that actually, sadly, the the fate of democracy in a medium-sized southern african country just doesn't really register anymore uh i think that latter point um is is certainly going to shape international responses to to zimbabwe um zimbabwe is not not the focus of of world attention this time um although it still tends to get more attention, particularly in the British press, than many other African countries. Uh, the I, I tend to see this as having quite a lot to do with internal Commonwealth politics, and those are a bit opaque, but there is certainly... Um, thought to be a lot of pressure within within the Commonwealth, a lot of enthusiasm for Zimbabwe to rejoin, and um, that... Uh, that is probably not um, the position of some of it, some of the Commonwealth's older older members. Um, thinking here particularly of 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 Britain, but of course, Commonwealth politics is can be a bit murky, and and uh, countries are are a bit cautious about um, setting out very strong positions on this. So let, let's talk about that directly, because I think uh, in some respects, this most recent election in Zimbabwe has features that are familiar to people who've looked at earlier elections, that, you know, the dominance of the ruling party in the media, allegations of violence, that the fact that, that um, you know, different aspects of the state are controlled very strongly, whether it's the courts, the election system and so on. However, what, what is different and new in this election is a feature of the modern world that we're living in, which is that it is, it is uh, harder, perhaps, for states to blatantly rig elections, and it is perhaps now possible for civil society to perform their own sort of validation exercises. And I'm talking here specifically about a kind of remarkable project where people effectively uh, uploaded um, via smartphones the record of their vote, and this was tallied by civil society activists as a kind of shadow running total. So could you could you describe to our listeners who won't know this story the significance of this and, and, and what it told us about what happened in this election? Yeah, absolutely. And you're completely right. It, it was fascinating to watch and even even to be to be part of. So um, if I can uh, go back a bit in um, in the last election in 2018, the um, the opposition contested their loss at the polls and um, went to court, but was unable to provide enough evidence to court. So the resolution that people made after that um, that the, after the the opposition lost its 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 um, case against the election was next election we're going to be prepared. And what we saw was a remarkable movement to. Um, ensure that there were um, people in the every polling station who took a picture of what are in Zimbabwe called V11s, and that's just the name of the form. But um, because of actually a static intervention after the, the 2002 elections, all they, they said that best practice was that 
um, these, these returns must be posted outside every polling station so that everyone could see them. And Zimbabwe wrote this into their own, um, electoral legislation. So every polling station had to put these up. And with mobile phones, everyone has been, is, you know, in theory, everyone's able to take that picture and send it. Now, this means you have to have people in those polling stations and you have to have a way of, of tallying them. And, um, so we, we, they, they were collecting, tabulating these, these V11s, these, these polling station returns. Now they were, um, uh, swarmed by the police in, um, the night of the election, had all of their equipment taken away and 40 odd people were arrested. But they were not the only group that was doing this tallying. Um, and it's, it's, it's a bit hard to know actually, because people were obviously very cautious in the lead up to it of quite what was happening. Um, but there was also, um, a group that was, um, collecting them. And then the most interesting part for those of us outside was they, they had an app generated so that they could crowdsource people to look at the V11s, look at these, these reports and enter in the results on, on a, on a website so that they could actually process this. It was over 12,000 polling station reports. So that's a lot of data to process. So in fact, it wasn't just that people in Zimbabwe were out there taking pictures, relaying them back, using particular apps that had been constructed for the purpose, um, back to, to the, um, to the, the opposition party, the, the triple C or to the ZSN ERC group, but also through an additional group. They could, this was a more crowdsourced effort to then report the results and then, um, tabulate them and in fact issue a, a map showing what they did. And they, they collected, uh, a, a really substantial proportion of the V11s. Um, I'm, told by people who, who are more expert in this than me, that they collected more of those reports than in um, recent Ke- Kenyan elections. And I believe they, they collected more than, than any other equivalent parallel vote or um, um, citizen sourced collection has done, at least in, in African elections. So this was a huge achievement, which has gone a bit under the radar because this was all done very, very quietly until after the election because of the fear that has happened to the very public civil society attempt to do this, that they, that they would be hijacked. And, and to be, and in fact, they were, um, uh, their, their servers were attacked. They, they were su- suffered DDS, um, attacks and so forth. So there were attempts to close down all of these, uh, these, these, um, alternative vote tabulations. Um, but, but it was a, a huge success and, um, it'll be really interesting to see to what extent these lessons are replicated from Zimbabwe in other elections in the region. Yeah. And so what, what did that data tell us? I mean, uh, because it, it seems to point to, uh, quite a different outcome to than the one that, w- that was officially, uh, resulted. Well, everyone's still being a bit cagey about the results. My, my gut feeling is that, um, from, from having looked at those results and, and having talked to people a bit, I don't know that the, the opposition can prove that they won the election. What I think they can, they do have 
evidence to support is that the ruling party candidate, um, President Menangagua, did not get the 50% of the vote that he needed to avoid going to a runoff election. So, um, and that, um, that's quite a, uh, an impressive achievement because really on some level, um, the things that made this vote, you know, unfair, um, unfree and unfair was not just the impact on, on the vote. Um, but it really was everything in the lead up to the election. The, the immense attacks that the opposition has suffered, um, on their financial basis, on their, their capacity to function as a party in Zimbabwe, uh, the arrest of their, of, of, of their MPs and their activists and so forth. Um, but, uh, for that, so for them to have kept ZANU from getting 50% is in itself actually, uh, a substantial achievement. Well, I, un- undoubtedly, for those of us that that have a perspective on Zimbabwe that isn't just from this year, I think it's a fair question. Has there ever been, maybe this is my last question to you, has there ever been a free and fair election in Zimbabwe? Uh, and therefore, is it reasonable to believe that there ever will be? No, I don't think there has been an election that has, that has been completely free and fair. Um, what was different for a period in the 1990s and to some extent into the 2000s was that when the opposition took cases to court, judges ruled in their favor. And so we saw um, elections being overturned. We saw um, results changing such that political parties were receiving finance from, from, from the government as legislation suggests they should. Cases like that that did give hope and that contributed to the emergence and the growth of the, the MDC party, which is now the, the, the triple C party. And so there was, I think, a bit of a trajectory and, and a sense that you could fight against these systems. And again, in the 2000s, there was also, um, these little, little movements like, um, SADC requiring Zimbabwe to bring in certain re- electoral reforms, the, um, the processes that led to the writing of new constitutions. Uh, that did that Zimbabwe's new constitution is a much stronger constitution, but the judiciary is increasingly co-opted. Not all members of the judiciary, but many many of the key judges seem to be willing to to make rulings that simply support the current government. So it's uh, some of those those opportunities have been closed off. Little by little. And again, we used to see, uh, protest marches. Zimbabwe's not a big country for protests in general, but there were protest marches. But increasingly, the willingness of the government to clamp down on those has, has closed off some of those options of the sort of mass protest movement as well. Um, so yeah, no, I would have to agree with you. I don't think there has been a free and fair election in Zimbabwe. But on the other hand, Zimbabwe has had elections regularly since independence. All of those elections have been multi-party elections. In all of them, opposition parties have stood, have articulated ideas, and have, in many of them, received substantial shares of the vote. So there is still, despite everything, a strong... Um, uh, 
sense of, of, of debate, of political opinion, of contestation, often within families, you know, within family groups, within friendship groups, people have competing ideas and, and that isn't going to disappear. It's just a question of, uh, uh, whether Zimbabwe's institutions can weather that, um, and whether those, those, those strong ideas and articulations and, and competing beliefs can be transformed into, into a, uh, a change in government, a change that would allow for the, 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 the revival of many of Zimbabwe's institutions. Because the saddest thing that we've seen, particularly over the past five years, has just been the immense decline in the, the capacity. There are still excellent doctors, teachers, civil servants working in Zimbabwe, but they're working under conditions that just make it impossible for them to carry out routine operations to provide healthcare to people, to provide, um, uh, you know, a quality education. And, and the, um, it, those institutions need better financing, better resourcing, um, in order to continue. Yeah. Well, I think that's a that's a perfect place to, to end this discussion. Um, Sarah, thank you very much for sharing your insights and, and uh, knowledge. And um, thank you for uh, joining me today. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I wanted to get a perspective from someone who is personally invested in Zimbabwe and its faltering democracy. So it's a real privilege to be joined now by Makon Barrero Harazavishi. He's a political activist. Uh, his background is as a human rights and democracy uh, promoter. He is in exile from Zimbabwe after having spent a year as a political prisoner and faced assassination attempts after his release from jail. So he's now in the UK, but he's following the issues there in Zimbabwe very closely. Mako, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Arthur, for hosting me here today. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. I, let's start with, with the, the, the outcome. Uh, as we both know, on Monday, Emerson Manangagwa was sworn in as president for his second term. Uh, how did you feel as someone who's put so much of your own life and energy into the struggle for democracy when when that happened? Yeah, it was uh, disappointing, extremely disappointing, because um, the election process itself was uh, first of all of illegalities. 
there were absence of electoral reforms. Uh, there was in controversial and flawed delimitation exercise where they were gerrymandering, you know, voter populations. There was the misuse of law in terms of uh, by uh, the police uh, targeting members of the opposition. Uh, at least 20 uh, opposition parliamentary council candidates were contesting either from prison or from courts, the courts. Um, there were lots of things in t- which were also mentioned by ob- election observer missions from the Southern African development community, the common market for Eastern Southern Africa, uh, the African Union, the European Union, the Qatar Center, and even echoed by the United Nations Secretary General. So it was after all this, you know, the people of Zimbabwe, the opposition, braved all this and uh, managed to defeat Mr. Emerson Nangagwa in the election. So when the chairperson of the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission announced a fake result, it was devastating. It was a blow which uh, most of us will never recover from because she, uh, under pressure, they then just you know, announced uh, results which had nothing to do with the voting that had happened. They could not verify this result. And when called upon to do so, say you just announced a figure, which was, for most of us, a random figure, which is not even linked to the voting processes and can't be verified in any way. And more damning was that this figure, it had actually leaked to the public two days before the uh, elections were announced. And if you have to add those figures, they reach up to 103% instead of 100%. So so it was shocking and it was just a, an illegal declaration which emanated from a hugely illegal process. So, I mean, clearly all kinds of uh, irregularities and, and falsifications um, in in this process. Uh, of course, anybody who has been fighting the battle for democracy in your country, in Zimbabwe, uh, would know that um, you face a big mountain to climb when it, whenever you have these, these elections in Zimbabwe. Um, did you feel that uh, the opposition was sufficiently prepared? Because, of course, uh, the the opposition itself has been subjected to so many attacks, to uh, having its funding, you know, removed, so, so many other challenges. Um, the opposition, uh, I can't say it was sufficiently prepared because uh, in a dictatorship, you can never be sufficiently prepared for some of the things that would happen. For example, you can never be sufficiently prepared we have on the voting day, voting is supposed to begin at 7 a.m. on the election day. Then you have ballot papers arriving 12, 12 hours late. You know, you can never prepare for that. You can never prepare uh, for even on the voting day in the rural areas. You have each and every polling station is manned by well-known uh, activists of NPF, which is illegal, by the way. And they were frog marching the voters to forcing them to vote for the ruling party. You, you can never prepare for such things. You can never prepare uh, to have 
uh, things like violence, how can you prepare against that? So I believe that in this election, the opposition did very well. It actually defeated uh, the ruling partisan PF. Uh, Ms. Nelson Chamisa defeated uh, Mr. Emerson Munangagwa, the incumbent president. But then uh, now you can also never prepare for a scenario whereby they then just announce a result from you know, off the hook, which has nothing to do with uh, the voting process that had happened. You can never prepare for a whole electoral body, a whole electoral commission to refuse to verify their results to the world and also to those who participated in the elections, to arrogantly put on their Twitter account that we are not compelled by the law to verify our results. Yeah. We, no one can prepare for that. So it's, it, it, it's a, as you say, it's an arrogant approach and it's an approach that uh, comes from the knowledge that the organs of the state are all controlled by ZANU-PF. But I, I wanted to uh, ask you about your perspective on the wider response, firstly in the region, in the SADC region, but also in uh, further afield. Uh, because, of course, as you've already noted, the SADC, the Southern African uh, election observers, were highly critical of of this election. Does, does that give hope to people such as yourself that... Your, your sort of brothers and sisters in, in the Southern African region are aware and have noted what, what took place? Yeah, I have hope because, you know, for the first time, uh, it showed that the world was really paying attention to Zimbabwe. And let me uh, reiterate that uh, Mr. Emerson Mnangagwa got into a coup in 2017, it was a full military coup. In 2017, and uh, you know when the old date that Mugabe has been removed from power, they thought Zimbabwe is now okay, it's now all right. These people forgot all about Zimbabwe, but it was now worse because this coup meant that the whole constitution had been subverted, that there was no longer rule of law, but rather rule by law, and. Uh, we saw human rights violations increased, abductions, and they were now doing it in a very present manner. They are, you know, like, for example, in 2018 alone, there were over 50 cases of abductions, torture, and rape. And uh, they have been consistent all together. I'm sure during the elections, people were aware of the midnight raids that were done by, uh, you know, the police, secret branches of the police, on local observers, uh, fought one of them arrested for doing nothing wrong, really, for not breaking any law. We are also aware of that att- attempted abduction of the spokesperson of the main opposition. So, uh, all these things now, uh, you know, uh, the reports that were done by the African Union, by the Southern African Development Community, EU, uh, Commonwealth, and, and others, they show that at least now attention on Zimbabwe is back and it will help to make the government, yes, it might feel uh, that they are not accountable to citizens, but at least they have some other international platforms where they will be made to account to. And uh, I'm sure that attention needs to be leveraged upon to force, uh, you know, uh, reforms, electoral reforms, political reforms, economic reforms, because we know even corruption, its rampant, it has increased. Yeah, 
And of course, as you described, these institutional coups we, in, in the context of Zimbabwe, of course, that extends to the election authority, it extends to the courts, it extends, of course, to the, the security forces. But what, one of the challenges um, which appears to be there in Zimbabwe and, and um, something I've seen in, in my own time, I, I worked in Zimbabwe t- more than 20 years ago, so not recently, but still uh, the, the challenge was there was that South Africa um, seems that the leadership, particularly the ANC leadership, is is very reluctant to uh, put any pressure on the ZANU-PF leadership. Some people say it's because of the the history from the liberation struggle. But of course, you yourself are, are fighting your own liberation struggle in your generation. So how how do you think uh south africa can be persuaded because south africa of course has so much power in the region can be persuaded to bring more pressure to bear on zimbabwe and on zanu pf in particular in south africa in the ruling party in south africa the african national congress uh, has always sided with zanu pf since the memorial even in the face of a clear and open, you know, electoral practice like what's happening. So, the issue with South Africa is uh, currently the Secretary General of the ruling party in South Africa, uh, Mr. Shikile Mbalula, has also been very arrogant with regards to, to you know, growing concerns, citizen concerns, and concerns by pro democracy forces in Zimbabwe, you know, pledging his loyalty to, to the ruling parties and PF and also disregarding. The observer, you know, missions uh, preliminary reports on elections. So, our work, like I'm speaking now, more as an activist, what I feel is there is going to be, uh, you know, natural causes in response to this. Because South Africa, right now, it has millions of illegal immigrants, and the bulk of them are from Zimbabwe. They are economic and political refugees who are fleeing South Africa. They are undocumented. And uh, it's really becoming an issue in South African politics. It's really becoming a typical issue in South Africa's economy. That these people, they use most of the things, you know, facilities which really are not put forward in the national budget of South Africa. So with this, if we check uh, last year, in 2021, when South Africa held their uh, local government uh, elections, for the first time, NC failed to surpass 50%. They failed. So this shows that uh, if you check the parties that regained popularity are those who, who are more of speaking, you know, having radical stances with immigration. And now South Africa coming to publicly endorse a ruling dictatorship in Zimbabwe, which is responsible for forced immigration and massed by Zimbabweans into South Africa, it will definitely have to trigger a, a, a sobering thoughts within the South African ruling party, the ANC, and also the government with regards to how they treat the Zimbabwean question. But if they fail to treat it well, yes, they might succeed in, in supporting uh, the dictatorship in Zimbabwe, which is also not sustainable because it will not last long. But also they will go down the drain with Sanupiev. So it's a critical issue that they have to approach with sober minds and also with wisdom. Yeah. And of course, you make a very good point there that, you know, the ANC's own position in South Africa is 
uh, weaker than it was historically. Uh, so, of course, it, it, you know, it, 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 it's not in a position necessarily to dictate the political um, terms of that country for time immemorial. Um, but I, to return to Zimbabwe for a, for, for a bit, um, one of the things which uh, seems to have been important in the past was that opposition, part, opposition politicians in your country were able to bring cases to the court um, and, you know, election cases in response to violations of election rules or, or other irregularities. Um, do you think that is still going to be possible in, in Emerson Manangagwa's Zimbabwe, where so many uh, judges and, and other court um, officials appear to be in the pocket of the ruling regime? Yeah, it's a very you know, impossible and it has become apparent to all. I can tell you from my, firstly, from my own personal experiences, uh, I've been a student leader, I've been an activist since 2011, when I enrolled in the first of Zimbabwe. I have been arrested uh, 37 times since then, and the bulk of them were, of course, Anam Kabe, and I've been in numerous prisons, and I've had the first uh, person first-hand experience of the judiciary of Zimbabwe, the justice system of Zimbabwe. So I can authoritatively tell you that post the 2017 coup when Nagawa came in, judicial capture, capture of the justice system became more apparent and it became more glaring. They never tried to sugarcoat it like Mukabe did. Look, in 2002, uh, Mukabe he was dragged to court in an election petition with regards to election rigging by the late former Prime Minister Dr. Mugen Richard Chantrain. The Chief Justice back then was called Justice Godfrey Chichao And uh, they, when the case was argued, it was apparent and clear with the evidence provided that uh, these elections were fraudulent and uh, they must be de- disregarded. But then the Chief Justice Joyce, what he did is he reserved judgment in the matter. He did not pass a judgment. He had enough integrity or lack of it thereof uh, to see that he can't really pronounce a flawed judgment. So what they did is he reserved the judgment. Of course, uh, the, that judgment was reserved forever. The applicant, Dr. Morgan Shachangre, has passed on. Robert Mkabe has passed on. The Chief Justice Joyce himself has passed on. So it's a judgment that will never be announced in time soon or even later. So, but now with Mnangagwa, we have seen judgments which defy logic being ended. Like I told you, with myself, I would, of course, them abusing the, the court system and everything, I would stay sometimes three weeks, three months under Mugabe in jail. But under Mnangagwa, I can tell you that I, I spent the 322 days that's over a year in prison, you know, the prison calendar. It's over a year. Right now, we have a job scholar, honorable job scholar. He was, he is now 400, over 445 days in jail over trumped up charges for doing his work as a lawyer and also as a lawmaker. No trial, nothing, and uh, no conviction. 
but he's there, he's languishing, he's suffering, and we all know that he's innocent, therefore knows he's innocent. So now coming to, to the courts, you will find that, especially with regards to the current uh, constitutional court and high court, they are captured soon before elections. They were given payouts of 400,000 US dollars. Um, we have had many, this election period was the most litigious. It had over 20 cases being brought before the courts, electoral cases, electoral uh, disputes. And uh, the way those cases were being handled, they showed fundamental flaws. Like, for example, Nangakwa used uh, the courts to cherry pick contestants to throw spanners into the campaign, you know, machinery of the opposition. They even disqualified Sefia Kasukwere. This very same courts has disenfranchised millions of voters, like uh, people who are outside Zimbabwe are not allowed to vote. They should be postal ballots, which enable people with example, in South Africa. There are millions of Zimbabweans here in the UK. There are millions of Zimbabweans. But they will not allow the courts deny these people their right to vote because they know that the bulk of them are economic and political refugees and they'll definitely fought against the establishment. So this court has been flawed. And then the Chief Justice himself, Luke Malaba, he, he ought to have been retired on the 15th of May in 2021 when he turned 70 years. This is according to the Constitution of Zimbabwe. But in a bid to ensure that he would be available to do with any electoral disputes in 2023, he has come to Emerson Nangakwa's aid in an electoral petition in 2018, uh, Mr. Nangagwa unlawfully amended the constitution. This was illegal. He un- amended the constitution and extended Malaba's retirement age to 75. The first time a whole constitution was amended to accommodate one person for one person, you know, and they judged that this, this is proof enough that uh, there was never to be expected to be any you know, impartiality or any justice to be gotten from the courts. Like, you know, there's a saying that uh, the courts cannot expect justice from the court of the hyena. This was the very much The courts cannot expect justice from the court of the hyena. Yeah, well, that's, um, I, yes, that that's a very stark image. Um, but in spite of what is a very grim uh, landscape, I think there are possibly some... Uh, elements for hope. Uh, one thing which um, outside observers have been very impressed with and, and which um, I've spoken to other people about was the the use of sort of of modern technology, smartphone apps, data to record these V11, these voter returns. And that made it harder. It made it harder for the government to, you know, fake the results. Um, so do you think there is a... Uh, there's a future for democracy activists such as yourself drawing on the kind of advantages of modern technology to continue your fight. Yes, of course, of course. Like I can tell you for a fact that Zimbabwe, now uh, we are over 42 years, over four decades of independence, but there's only one national television, the Zimbabwe television, which is controlled national media is controlled, but then because of technology, I can, you know, uh, you know, uh, do my pro-democracy campaigns here from London on my smartphone. Uh, I can communicate, I can expose, uh, you know, human rights abuses. Like during this election, I did quite a lot. 
Yeah, I can do it from here in London, uh, and they can't get me. They even the Zimbabwe police, the Zimbabwe public police, even issued a statement saying that uh, we are taking advantage that we are outside the country, so they can't get us. You know, and it was evidence enough of the impact that we are using of technology. Even Mr. Nangagwa himself, he, he, he you know, he, he insulted us, saying, uh, "These are little boys; they won't. They are just making noise." Uh, we will deal with them, but he knows that it's proof that our generation, the young generation, is making use of uh, technology, of smartphone, and of data to, you know, fire tweets away, fire posts on Facebook and others, to, in order to to campaign and raise awareness around our issues. Yeah. Um, so I guess my my final question and and the final sort of part of this discussion. Is, is the role for the wider world um, because unfortunately, you know, there was a time when Zimbabwe was the front page news here in the UK, um, but maybe because of events in Ukraine, maybe for other reasons, uh, it's kind of dropped off the agenda to some extent. And, and similarly for the US, uh, they've, made, they've made some public statements, but they haven't really taken it as a big priority and, and of course the world is preoccupied with, with some other issues so how how can uh, how, how should uh, do you feel the sort of the global north um, western countries respond to this uh, these events um, my say would be um, their response to defense should be on the basis of principles. Like, we know the role that uh, SMAP wants to be readmitted uh, to the Commonwealth. They should, you know, play by the book if, and assess Zimbabwe if it meets the way they ran this election, the way they abducted people, the way they tortured people, the way they killed people in this election, the way they manipulated elections. If they meet you know, the standards for them to be readmitted in the Commonwealth. If they don't, they must be kicked out. And I believe that if the world is engaged like that again, just like what happened in the fight against apartheid, where the world united against the apartheid regime in, 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 in South Africa back then, I believe the world can also do the same. And um, Mr. Nangapa used to benefit from being anonymous, from not being known. But now he's now known. He can no longer continue to benefit from the anonymity that he used to have, that the world didn't really know him, who he was, they thought maybe it's not okay, because is gone. So, these are things which I feel uh, the world needs not to ignore, because there will have big implications, like what we are seeing in West Africa, cools there. It's because the world has been paying a blind eye, they were focusing on just doing trade with corrupt regimes, with regimes that abuse human rights with regimes that do not even respect the raw flow and elections and took the elections. Now there's a crisis. They, who, those in the West and across the world who were benefiting from trade with these regimes, you know, they can no longer benefit anymore because lots of things, I'm sure, you know, even France is being kicked out, uh, you know, from those Francophone uh, Af- uh, countries where coups are, are trending. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and so finally, uh, at a personal level, um, if people are having heard you feel inspired 
to to try to offer some support or somehow help uh, the democracy movement in Zimbabwe? What what should they do if if they're you know if they're outside the country? I'm making an appeal that uh, we all know that the Zimbabwean government has passed some laws. There is the Patriotic Bill, then which uh, bars people in Zimbabwe, especially segregated opposition politicians and activists, from speaking with the outside world to solicit solidarity. We also know that they have, in the run-up to elections, they have also imposed the private voluntary organizations bill, which effectively render the activities of uh, CSOs, civil society organizations, and non-governmental organizations, impossible. So this is a call to the world now that they need to put infrastructure to really support. I'm sure there will need to be social movements that need to be supported. There will be, you know, the world also needs to speak up for the people of Zimbabwe who have been muscled by the patriotic view. They need to speak out more, you know, so that uh, it is also rendered useless. Because what they did to the, what they were targeting by imposing this patriotic view is to muscle people from speaking out, and the world must speak out on behalf of the muscled uh, opposition politicians, muscled pro-democracy activists and human rights defenders in Zimbabwe, muscled journalists in Zimbabwe. So it's about speaking out and also supporting social movements and the wider pro-democracy movement in Zimbabwe. Because look. Have claimed down and shut down the democratic space when we were having the COVID uh, lockdowns. They took it as an opportunity not to lock out or lock down the COVID virus, but they shut down uh, the democratic space. They locked down democracy. They locked down development. And uh, this is something that the post need solidarity in, you know, so that they recover, so that their institutions, trade unions, any random genuine labor union in Zimbabwe. They have prison charges, they have, you know, experience of politically motivated charges. Journalists have been jailed for exposing corruption. Uh, we have opposition politicians in jail, the activists jailed, some abducted, killed, tortured. We are definitely in Zimbabwe in the fight for our lives. Yes, there's a case and cause for democracy and uh, there's a case and cause for, for, for freedom. And it needs world support. Well, that's uh, a a powerful message and a perfect place to uh, finish this discussion. Mako, I know that you are on Twitter and uh, very visible online, so people who want to follow your work and support you will be able to find you there. Uh, In the meantime, thank you so much for joining me today on this podcast. Thank you, Arthur. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining this, the third episode of our new podcast, Behind the Lines with Arthur Snell. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please spread the word. As a brand new pod, we still need people to give us positive reviews or share it with others who they think might find it interesting so we can build up a listener base. Thanks again, and I hope to see you next time. Behind the Lines with Arthur Snell has been a Viner Street production.
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.